How wonderful is it to have them back? Mm. Thank you, choir, for that. And it's the perfect setup for the scriptures this morning, as it's though the earth was anticipating what is to come, that it stops for the briefest of moments in the midst of incredible chaos and wants desperately to sing Sanctus, Sanctus. Holy is the one who is to come. As Melinda reads, hear of the anxiety, hear of what is coming, as particularly we begin with the scripture out of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are the one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. If the Assyrians come into our land and tread upon our soil, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight installed as rulers. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Now, is that as the backdrop of what the expectation was? Now hear how God chose to twist that and create something brand new in the midst of that expectation. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her, who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to look back for a few moments and try and get a grasp on some of the history that led up to me talking a little bit about Mary. This is the continuation of kind of the feminine face of God and women in Scripture. And uh, we were going to have someone speak today, and it didn't work out, and so you get me. And... It's great to be back in the pulpit, but um, uh, I'll just say it that way. It's, it's wonderful to be back. But man, have we had a rare privilege to hear some truly phenomenal gifted voices, to come to terms with 
variety of aspects of God and particularly of women. Will you pray with me? God of creation, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of those gathered here in this place be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, it was a time of absolute desperation that had grown over almost 600 years. Consistently, the chosen people had blown it on a massive scale. The consequences of that law-breaking had been everything had been lost, not just once, but twice. Everything had been lost. It happened first in the 7th century and then again in the 5th century B.C. Each time it had been a different world power that had engulfed them. And God, according to Scripture, had allowed it to happen. For those of a more orthodox understanding, they would say God made it happen. That it was the consequence of a behavior that went absolutely against God's law. They lost the promised land. They lost the ornate temple. It was completely destroyed. They lost political power and religious freedom. Everything was taken away, and each time the relationship with God also seemed lost. Ironically enough, through it all, their dependence on God had to increase and be redefined. Then came the ensuing years where suddenly a new group, a new nation, took away what they thought they had. The the Israelites had come back to their home. They had come back and were able, because of Cyrus, to reestablish a temple, although in a much smaller scale. They had been um, told that they could come back and worship the, the way that they wanted. They were told that they could come back and repopulate the land, and they did. But then came Rome, and Rome conquered it all again. And some of the freedoms that they had redeveloped were again taken away. It was a time of desperation. It was a time of chaos. It was a time of a kingdom unlike any kingdom that they had had to deal with before, particularly now that they live back in the land. Rome was the ultimate kingdom of power. That's one side of the equation. As the Gospels were written, another thing had emerged that seemed insurmountable by this chosen people. What is it about coming into power that makes us treat each other the way that we often do? Because in the midst of that time, five groups within Judaism emerged as powers and were in constant conflict with each other. There were the Sadducees. There were the Pharisees. There were the Essenes and even the Herodians who came in and battled each other about who needed or deserved to have appropriate power. It was an amazing time. And then you throw in the powder keg lighting zealots who thought that violence was the only answer that was going to allow them to regain the kind of power that they had in the past. Again, five groups within Judaism one major kingdom outside of Judaism, all of whom are in absolute conflict with each other. No wonder God got tired of it. Can you imagine that? 
And then you have to throw in one other population. About 95% of those living in Israel who claimed Judaism as their faith were poor, deeply poor. And it was those who cried out in many ways with the words like what you heard Melinda read out of Micah. Might there be someone, might there be an emergence of a hero of some kind that could allow us to become what we were intended to be, the light for the nations? Might that hero emerge? And every one of the groups had a different understanding of what that hero might look like and how that hero might go about their work. The name for the hero was Messiah, the Anointed One. But whether this hero was going to be a suffering servant or a great prophet or a military king and military conqueror was being fought over at the deepest levels. That's what we need in our heads as I move to the next thing in just a second. But I've got to tell you something. As I, as I was preparing for the sermon, it happened to be kind of looking ahead and, and over the last month have watched a kind of chaotic conflict take place once again. It's something that we deal with every four years. First service, uh, one of the things that took place was, you know, we were, we, I was talking about this and it's a more interactive service and I was talking about the Republican and the Democratic conventions and the rhetoric that comes out of that and one sir, person from the back said, yeah, very much like a hurricane of wind. <laughs> because what I talked about in the midst of that was, you know, I, I am a political animal. Many of you know that, but I try not to bring it to the pulpit. It's been very frustrating to me on, in both camps to watch the rhetoric one more time. Look at where we've come. We're in a place where we are fighting so much with each other that you can't even figure out where each side stands or what their platforms may be or what, what their future may hold for, for this country that we love. I figured that about 85% of the rhetoric coming out of these two organizations, and particularly these two gatherings, about 85% is negativity pointed toward the other. And maybe I'm being generous on the 85%. We have moved into attack mode in ways that I just haven't seen much before. I spent a lot of time on the Hill in Washington, D.C., and I've seen it firsthand. This is a different level. It is a different level of questioning integrity, of making things up, of creating assumptions that place the other side on such a negative kind of platform as to not trust them at all. It reminds me again that we're back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we need this message today. So out of that kind of chaotic world, let me go back again to the time of the gospel writing. Into that kind of chaotic world, God somehow makes a choice. And the choice is centered on a 13 or 14-year-old girl. And by the way, the girl lives in the wrong place for any of this to occur. 
She lives in the wrong place. She's in the wrong, not only the wrong city, she's in the wrong region. Anyone who's going to be emerged and chosen by God, got to live in Bellevue, Washington, I'm sorry, <laughs> in Jerusalem, or at least in Judea. Not this chosen one. This chosen one lives in Nazareth of Galilee, a place that was so non-Jewish that those who were Jewish had to choose that in such an incredible way as to be countercultural. It was an incredible time, an incredible place for God to choose this one. And what do we know about Mary? I mean, almost nothing. You know, we get this much of her story, and yet I will tell you and, and assert today that this much of the story makes claim to this much of what the story needs to be for us. It's incredible the weight that she carries. And I don't just mean the son that she bears. This young girl is born in obscurity without any power really whatsoever. And imagine for just a second, if, if you can go here, that this angel named, and what was the name of the angel? Gabriel, which by the way means voice of God. The way I imagine it is God's word with wings. Comes to this girl and makes this incredibly miraculous, terrifying claim that out of her obscurity, she becomes the chosen one, the one that will bear the child who is to change everything. And her response is so beautiful as she obviously knows her scriptures well enough to sing the song, and it was a sung song, that sings the song of Hannah and says in the most beautiful way, Yes. Yes. But we better remember a couple things about all this. What we've done with the Christmas story has made it so beautiful and so... What's a good word? What? Romantic. That what... Well, we need to take a step back from that and understand how jarring how incredibly negative those that saw this story from the perspective of that time would feel about it. Uh, was she married? No. Was she betrothed? Yes. And she becomes pregnant. We have an unwed mother emerging as the chosen one of God. You think it's, um, it's a little jarring, I think, for many still today. You need to think about it in that context. What should have happened is they should have taken her to the edge of the city and stoned her to death. But her betrothed husband protects her, surrounds her, just moves her behind him, and she's not touched. Then comes this call to go to Bethlehem. It would be like traveling, as I said, from here to Cleelum on the back of a donkey at nine months pregnant. Yeah, just think about that for a minute. And they go, and she comes to a place where there is no room for them. She begins to feel those pangs of labor, so symbolic should these pangs of labor be, about what God is about to bring. And they find another, even more obscure place, a stable, whether it was a cave or something else, 
where she goes in and without help gives birth to this child. This should jar us to our very bones. But it doesn't end there, does it? What becomes even more symbolic in the piece that we often miss during Christmas is who it is that comes to visit and how she responds to each of those populations. First, this incredible angelic choir opens the heavens and sings to the royalty of the area. No. This angelic choir from the heavens sings to the lowliest, most disrespected, most misunderstood, most obnoxious group of people in the world of that time. The shepherds. The shepherds. No one liked or respected the shepherds. The shepherds were crooks. The shepherds did weird things. The shepherds didn't smell good. The shepherds were everything that anyone who wanted to be anybody avoided. But this is where the claim comes. And so what do they do? They travel. They follow the directive of the angelic choir and they go to this manger, this cow trough, where the baby has been laid to be homage to this baby. The shepherds. Shepherds. And they do, in fact, go and pay homage. Mary, in her right, should have turned them away. But did she turn them away? These dirty, filthy, unacceptable, obnoxious group of people? No. She welcomed them in accepted them fully, and allowed them to do what they needed to do to pay homage to this child. Lowest possible end of the social spectrum. Who else came to visit the child? Kings, right? Kings. Whether that was in the manger or at a house, we don't know. Whether there were three or five or ten, We don't know. We know they brought gifts, as did the shepherds. But the kings come, these magi, the wise men, whatever we want to call them, come. They are in the opposite side of the social spectrum. They are the richest of the rich. Otherwise, they would never have been able to make this journey with their entourages. But they did. And, by the way, like the shepherds, they weren't of the same religion at all of this God that was giving birth to this child. They were astrologers. They followed the stars. They saw religion in a completely different way. Oh, oh by the way, I, think, I forgot to say one thing about the shepherds. The shepherds never went to church. <laughs> Just thought I'd mention that. The king bring these incredibly wealth-filled gifts paying homage in a completely different way. And did Mary reject them? No. Welcomed them in in exactly the same way as the lowly shepherds. What is introduced in the midst of this time, what is introduced in this story by this young girl is what is to come next. This is the new kingdom, and I will use that language This is the new kingdom juxtaposed to the kingdom of Rome. Completely different than the kingdom of Israel with the fighting and warring that's going on. This is the new kingdom. 
where suddenly all are welcome. No matter where they come from, no matter whether they're Democrat or Republican, no matter where their belief systems may be, no matter whether they're on this end or this end or anything in the middle, Mary becomes that person who helps us understand what welcoming is all about and introduces us to what is going to come later through the life and teachings of Jesus. It's introduced right here. Friends, where I struggle is that I don't see this very often anywhere. I saw a glimmer of it again yesterday at the service for Together We Build. I saw in incredible ways, not just the conversations, but the absolute love and welcome and acceptance of a wide array of understandings of God, of Christian, and a variety within that mode, of Jewish, and a variety within that faith group, of Muslim, and a variety within that group, all coming together to celebrate God, spoken about, written about, read about in different ways, but still celebrating that God, worshiping together. And where I found incredible hope was when the youth stood up and spoke about the power of that event. And I thought about Mary. Mary would have been all over that yesterday. She would have been. So where does that leave us? Well, if you look at where we are as a country, as you look at where we are even denominationally or as a Christian faith, maybe it's time to really truly revisit this whole story. To look again at Mary. To look again at Jesus. To look again at what we need to be in this community of Bellevue or Issaquah or Seattle. To look again at the populations that we have a tendency to reject. And we don't really want them here. To look again at the populations that we don't just reject in a church, but that we reject in society. And we better remember the shepherds. And we better remember the kings, because those who are wealthy are also rejected in many, many ways. And we better remember that what brought all of them together is what needs to bring us together. A baby laid in a manger, and I shared with the children this morning, as I, the, the children's message this, story, this morning was I had this big bath towel that I pretended I used to do as a kid, you know, wrap it around as the superhero cape. Um, it was really ugly. I, it's, it's sitting out there. You can look at it, and how I thought of Shannon is she did the table, and I wrapped it around this little thing saying, this is a whole different kind of hero for us. But this is the hero that God chose who came into the world about this size and guided and loved and healed and accepted in ways that are still jarring for us today. So here's my hope for the coming year, that we spend time really examining what it means to open these doors to all that we really come to terms with our role in this community, 
and not just going out to serve others as was done with Hammond House this morning, but also inviting others, no matter who they are, to come in and feel the warmth and generosity of this community in the midst of the conflict that we live in today. Might we be that church? Might we be that light? Might we be that bread? Might we be that Mary? As we look ahead today, will you pray with me? God of creation, you made what seemed impossible possible. No matter where we stand in the midst of this story, this is a shining example of your expectation of us. That it is possible in the midst of a world of incredible conflict to bring peace and hope and love and joy. And let us be, let us be that church. All this we ask in the name of the one who guides us in that work. Jesus Christ.